pray. Lord God, we do need you now. Lord God, we ask that you would teach us from your word. Show us Christ. And don't pass us by, God, but come and dwell with us. We are in need of being taught, Lord. Lord God, I pray your Holy Spirit would teach us this morning. Pray, God, that you would help me to speak clearly, to speak boldly the truth. God, I am inadequate to do this. And so, God, I ask that you would help, that you would uh, give me the words to say. And, God, that we would find uh, truth to be beautiful and that we would walk in it. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. First Timothy. First Timothy. As is the case when we start a new series, I always give you a fairly decent little background of the history. So I plan on doing that this morning, just briefly. While you turn to it, this is the first of three letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, that are most often uh, referred to as the pastor epistles or pastoral letters. Uh, they are written to individual pastors, uh, which of course is Timothy and Titus. Um, therefore, uh, much of the content uh, is meant for the pastor. Uh, and today's pastors can still glean uh, a great deal from what uh, Timothy and Titus gleaned from the apostles' letter to them. Uh, and yet they're also meant for congregations. Uh, so the audience was the pastor, uh, but there is some implication for the congregations. We know that because Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3 uh, that all Scripture is used for teaching and rebuking and training in righteousness. And, of course, that would have included 1 Timothy. Uh, Paul mentions his apostleship at the beginning of the letter. Uh, Timothy would have known he was apostle. And so uh, the reason Paul makes sure that he includes that uh, is to remind the congregation of Paul's authority regarding what he was writing uh, to Timothy and to them. And uh, in all three, uh, the closing phrase, grace be to you, or a variation of that, is actually plural. And so we know that Paul expected that that letter uh, would be read uh, to the congregation. Uh, so although we know Timothy uh, probably read it first, uh, no doubt he read it to uh, the church as well. <clears throat> who is Timothy? Some of you may know this, but it's always good for those of you who may not know. Timothy was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. Uh, we don't know much more about Timothy's father. Uh, we don't know his name, uh, but we know his mother's Eunice and grandmother Lois were believers and taught him the scriptures. He is mentioned 26 times in the New Testament, starting with what appears to be Paul's first meeting with him in Acts 16 in the city of Lystra. And according to Acts 16, Timothy already had a solid reputation among the brothers in the area when Paul met him. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him on his various missionary trips, and so Timothy was with Paul throughout many of them, uh, including church plants, um, and eventually being left behind to pastor the church in Ephesus. Timothy suffered some kind of an imprisonment. We don't know what or, or necessarily even um, what transpired there, but we know he was in prison because he was released. Uh, we see that in Hebrews 13. Um, and it is believed by many that Timothy may have had somewhat of a timid um, personality, uh, maybe a quiet spirit, because Paul reminds him in his original charge here in 1 Timothy, um, he gives him a charge reminding him of things. And there's another one in uh, chapter 4, uh, to not let anyone think less of him because of his youth. 
uh, and to fan into uh, flame his gift. We see that in 2 Timothy. And another reminder uh, in that chapter as well, uh, to not have a spirit of fear, because that's not what the Lord gave us, but a spirit of power and of self-control. Um, that's because, <clears throat> if I can be completely honest with you, and I always have been, um, pastoring churches is hard. That was where you were going to say amen. <laughs> Pastoring churches is hard. And so, thank you. Uh, and Timothy, clearly, if he'd have had somewhat of a timid personality, uh, Paul would have been well aware of that. And so he reminds him in First and Second Timothy several times of these charges. I charge you to do this. Uh, don't forget who you are. You do not have a power, uh, a spirit of fear, but a power and of self-control. Uh, fan into a flame the gift that you have. Don't look, let anyone look down on you because you're young. And so this timidness may have, may have been uh, due to his age. As we know, Timothy was probably a teenager uh, when Paul met him in Acts uh, and probably was in his early 30s when he was left to pastor a church in Ephesus. However, don't completely feel sorry for Timothy uh, Timothy had a wealth of experience in starting churches because he had helped Paul plant the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, and uh, Berea. And he was with Paul in Ephesus for three years that Paul taught there. I mean, he was with Paul. It's a pretty good deal. Uh, when Paul was in prison in Rome for two years, Timothy was there helping take care of his needs. When Paul got out, he and Timothy made their way back to Ephesus and Paul found some false teaching. Now, if you've read much of the Bible in any of Paul's letters, uh, Paul did not um, care for false teaching. Uh, and so he decides that we're going to leave Timothy there, and he is charged with solving those issues. So all in all, uh, the best that we can read and piece together some timelines, uh, Timothy spent at least 13 years by Paul's side learning the ropes of ministry and doctrine. Now, I've been mentored by some great people. None of them were Paul. <laughs> Timothy was mentored by the Apostle Paul. I was telling somebody in our church that if I, when I'm here, I'm, I'm preaching the scriptures to you and I'm telling you, here's this and here's that. If, if Paul walks in, Paul's going to tell you, here is what we're doing. And I mean, he holds that authority as an apostle and he was the one that was training. Timothy. Well, Paul leaves Timothy in Ephesus to fix these problems, and uh, he uh, wanted to return, but that didn't happen. Uh, and the first letter that we find here to Timothy was believed to be written about A.D. 64. Most likely, Paul wrote it from Rome or Macedonia. Second Timothy was written around A.D. 67, and it was Paul's last writing to Timothy. Uh, and he made clear in that letter uh, that his time was soon over and would be executed and 2 Timothy serves in many ways as a final passing of the torch to Paul's protege. Historically, uh, which is uh, tradition, so it's not necessarily fact, but historically, it is believed that Timothy died in Ephesus around AD 97 uh, after he rebuked a crowd of people participating in a pagan parade, and that crowd beat him to death with clubs. The city of Ephesus, we should know a little bit about it. It was a seaport on the west coast of Asia Minor, what is now uh, modern-day Turkey. The, center, the city was a center of travel and commerce, and it was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which is the temple of Artemis, the goddess of the hunt. 
if you were to travel to Turkey today, uh, that part of that uh, temple still exists, but it's only uh, part of the foundation in one column. Uh, this temple was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, and six stories high. Uh, it was a great temple for that period of time, uh, and clearly the city was involved in pagan worship. Uh, it was a wealthy city because of where it was situated, and it was saturated uh, with immoralities of every kind. Not much different than America, so not much different at all. The overall theme of this letter, the overall purpose of this letter of Paul writing to Timothy uh, is a charge uh, to make sure the church holds to sound doctrine, which we will see in chapter 1, uh, verse 3, and that the church behaves accordingly to it. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, 14 through 15, where Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So that's Paul's intention of writing this letter, to get him to understand and make sure that the others understand how they should behave in the household of God. That's why it's a great letter for us. It's a great one for us to study uh, as a fairly new church. So let's tackle the first 11 verses. Uh, We'll actually do these verses in two sermons, um, but we're going to read all 11 verses. So let's start. Paul, writing to Timothy, the inspired word of God, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father In Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. You see in verses 1 and 2, in the opening salutations, the tenderness of Paul to his young protege. Don't gloss over that relationship there. Don't gloss too quickly over the opening of this book. Timothy is not just a brother in Christ. Paul is not just a fellow laborer in Christ. He's not just a pastor church planter. Um, Timothy was not just his protege. Timothy is also Paul's friend. That should not be moved over too quickly. 
And even more than that, Paul sees his relationship with Timothy as a spiritual father and son. If you can listen to these words from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, my true child in the faith. I have zero doubt that when this letter arrived, Timothy opened it with much excitement and poured over each word. And there's zero doubt in my mind um, that Paul had a deep affection for Timothy. And Timothy would have had the same affection likewise. And those words would have washed over Timothy as he read them. The pastorship is a lonely, lonely place sometimes. And here's Timothy. No Facebook, no cell phones, no FaceTime, by himself pastoring this church in Ephesus while his mentor, his spiritual father, his friend is off somewhere else. And he has a letter from him. My generation knows somewhat of this. Everybody under my age probably knows very little about this, but letters held great significance prior to cell phones and all the other things that came out. And so this letter would have come into his hands and he would have held it uh, as a great treasure. He would have missed, no doubt, his companionship and his wisdom and he would have missed someone understanding how difficult it is to pastor a church. But here is a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to give Timothy the one thing that I have no doubt because I pastor that every pastor should be wanting and that I want, and that is wisdom. Give me wisdom on how to handle that. And this letter arrives. We see this charge immediately to Paul. Paul wastes very little time in getting right into the meat of the matter. And verses 3 through 7 are heavy. I'm going to read a translation from the New English translation, just so you can hear it again. As I urged you when I was leaving from Macedonia, urged, do you hear the, the weight there? As I urged you when I was leaving from Macedonia, stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teachings nor to occupy themselves with myths and interminable genealogies. Such things promote useless speculations rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. But the aim of our instruction, the, the aim of your charge, is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Some have strayed away from these and have turned away to empty discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not understand what they are saying or the things they insist on. These false teachings could have been and about the genealogies. But what we do know is Paul was very concerned with them, as I'm sure Timothy was as well. Some argue that some parts of this false teaching would have caused a division among Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And if you were to ask Peter about how Paul felt about that, for those of you who know the Bible, Peter would tell you about his rebuke from Paul in Galatians 2 for trying to make the Jewish believers look 
different or maybe even better than the Gentile believers. So Paul had no use for this false teaching that was occurring in the church, whatever it may be. And because of it, Paul reminds Timothy, it's been a period of time, he left them there for a purpose, he opens his letter saying, my true child, my, my true child, uh, here it is, I'm the apostle, I'm writing to you, I'm writing to the church. Let's talk about what I left you there for. Charging people to not teach false doctrine. Don't teach any other doctrine than what the apostle Paul had taught them. And separately, Paul reminds to Timothy, reminds Timothy to tell the people, don't devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogy which promotes speculations rather than stewardship, or you could substitute the phrase good order from God that is by faith. The result of what was happening in the church is good order was not happening. The redemptive plan of Christ was being de-emphasized over these other things that Paul says are speculations. And they're not useful. They're not in good order. What is in good order is the redemptive plan of Christ. Now, I don't know of any churches, uh, personally, um, that are caught up or wrapped up in any genealogy issues. But throughout church history, Christians have been very good at wrapping ourselves up in the church on other issues that are not necessarily required anchors for the gospel. Give you some examples to study then times. A good speculation of how all that's going to work out. Let me help you out. I know it's happening. Jesus is coming back. And believers go with him. We can talk and we can debate about when and how and all that. But here's what I know. I know that Jesus is coming back because he told me that he was. And all the other things are great to discuss and should be pondered. And our minds should be stretched. But they are not necessary for me to come to saving faith in Christ. They're not, nor are they necessary for me to live out the Christian life or for the church to be on mission for the gospel. However, this is important to us as a church, there are non-negotiables when it comes to the Christian faith and the church. If you deny the Trinity, that's a problem. If you deny the deity of Christ, that is a problem. If you deny his sinless life and his substitutionary death, that is a problem. And if you deny salvation by grace through faith, then you've denied the gospel. That is crucial to coming to Christ. Without these truths, we are still dead in our sins and are hopeless. And these are unbending truths among some others, that are clearly, clearly taught in the Scripture and are essential for salvation, for Christian living, and the church. And there are many, many other issues that have divided the church. That's why we have denominations. People always come to me, how come we have so many churches? I don't understand. Why can't we all just be one? Have you studied theology? <laughs> have you studied church history? There are disagreements on this stuff. I'm not saying that some of those disagreements aren't worthy of being disagreements. I, as a Baptist, believe that you should be submerged when you baptize. I think I believe that. I believe the Scripture teaches that. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that you should be dunked, that you should go all the way underwater. I absolutely believe we should. 
And I believe my brothers and sisters in denominations who don't hold to submersion are wrong. I believe that. But that doesn't mean they're wrong about the gospel. And that's crucial. Doesn't mean they're wrong about the gospel. When we get to heaven, I believe, I believe that we Baptists will be, will be told we are right about how you get baptized. I believe that. I believe that. And we get the chance to turn around to all the other denominations and say, I told you so. But I am utterly convinced that there will be some things that we're going to be wrong about. No amens. <laughs> all Baptists. I like that. You're confident. I like that. The essential truths, however, of the gospel can never be negotiated or we lose Christ. Now, teaching errors and heresy are not the same thing. R.C. Sproul said it best on this subject when he said this. I'm going to be reading several quotes because I have nothing original to say on this topic. But there are other men who have said it much better than I. R.C. Sproul said it this way. But what do we mean by heresy? Is every theological error a heresy? In a broad sense, every departure from biblical truth may be regarded as a heresy. But in the currency of Christian thought, the term heresy has usually been reserved for gross and heinous distortions of biblical truth, for errors so grave that they threaten either the essence of the Christian faith or the well-being of the Christian church. Heresy is something that strikes at the very heart of the gospel and of truth. And that's true. The foundational doctrines of the church, these primary issues cannot be negotiated. And the aim of this charge that Paul is giving Timothy about this false doctrine. This false doctrine would have been anything that goes against the Old Testament, anything that goes against Jesus' teaching, or anything that the apostles would have been teaching. We see that in Acts 2. Anything that goes against that, their, their charge, what they're hoping the result of their charge will be, is that people will have love that issues from a pure heart. Speculations and divisions here, love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And that's Paul's belief that if Timothy carries out his charge, those three things will be the fruit of that charge. Now, this particular sermon, we're going to not talk about the law, but we will next week. Next week, we will talk about the lawful use of the law. But this week, we're going to talk about sound doctrine because that is this overall theme of 1 Timothy Sound doctrine, how to behave in the church, and how for us to walk accordingly. But we must ask, when you get to verse 10, what Paul means about sound doctrine. What does that mean? Well, clearly it means healthy doctrine. When the term doctrine or sound doctrine appears 13 times in the Bible, with 12 of those being in the New Testament. Everybody in here has doctrine. We all do. Whether you've been walking with Christ for most of your life or whether or not this is your first time to ever walk in a church. If I were to say God does this or that and you were to say, I don't think God does this or that, then, then you have doctrine. 
you have a belief, a framework of how you see God or how you think he works. The problem is most of us at some point in our life had bad doctrine because our doctrine was formed not from the scriptures but from our experiences or our own human mind about how we think things should be or should not be. But doctrine must always, 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 if I could hit repeat like Millie Vanilli, how many of y'all caught that? Some of y'all didn't, y'all too young. If I could hit it on repeat, I would leave always. It should always come from Scripture. It must be the Bible that informs our doctrine because only Scripture is divinely inspired. In its basic sense, then, sound doctrine is any teaching from the Bible. Dr. Scott Swain, a professor at Reformed Theological Seminary, said it this way. Doctrine is teaching from God about God that directs us to the glory of God. This definition provides a helpful anatomy of sound doctrine, identifying doctrine's source, its object, and its ultimate end. You must consider these elements when you look at sound doctrine. Holy Scripture is the source and norm of sound doctrine. Doctrine is drawn from the Holy Scriptures as from a fountain. This is why Paul will tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now no doubt that, that Timothy would not have been a stranger to the term sound doctrine. For 13 plus years, he hung out with Paul, planting churches. He would have had a very real sense of what it means to have healthy and sound doctrine. But Paul was inspired in the Holy Spirit to write this in chapter 6 of this letter, which actually helped Timothy remember how sound doctrine is defined. He writes it this way in chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, Old Testament apostles' teaching, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. So, in other words, Paul, his doctrine agrees, sound doctrine agrees with the teachings of Christ, the Old Testament teachings, and, and the apostles' teaching. And all of this type of teaching, all sound doctrine, and this is crucial, leads to godliness. Amen. <laughs> All sound doctrine leads to godliness. It should lead you to understand better the holiness of God. It should, under, it should lead you to understand the glory of God. It should lead you to understand how exalted Christ is. Those are the doctrines of the scripture that should be happening. If we're teaching it and if we're walking in it, it should stir up in us godliness. We must measure all healthy doctrine as that which displays Christ that's the center of the gospel. And that must be heavier and weightier than our preferences or assumptions. Now Paul would find, as I'm sure Timothy did, that in time there are legitimate disagreements over some non-essential gospel doctrines of the scriptures. 
even when it pertains to the church and Christian life. Four years ago, we had 11, 12 people here. It was like me, Mark, and Rhonda, a couple other people, and my family. Like the doctrine was solid. (laughs) We're growing a lot. And as we continue to grow, there will be people who have differences in opinions on some of these non-essential doctrines. So how do we decide as a church? How do we decide what is the dividing line of truth and doctrinal assumptions? That's a weighty thing for me. As a pastor who desires to see a church grow, it's a weighty thing. As a pastor who desires for people to see Christ in the scriptures and to recognize their need for him, to proclaim Christ, to repent and come to saving faith and to walk in godliness, it's important to me how we handle this. Here is a rather famous historical quote among some Protestants. If you've grown up in the church, you uh, may have heard it. I did not know the background of it, and I do now, so I'm happy to share, with you, share it with you. But here's the famous quote. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Dr. Mark Ross, systematic, theo- the- systematic theology director of Erskine Theological Seminary, writing for Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul, said this regarding the history of this quote that it comes from a German Lutheran theologian of the early 17th century, Rupertus Maldinus. And the phrase occurs in a track on Christian unity written in 1627. They didn't get along then either. (laughs) It's not a new thing. During the Thirty Years' War, which was a bloody time in European history in which religious tensions played a significant role, the saying found favor with many great writers and theologians. One of mine would be Richard Baxter, who I enjoy reading. And he goes on to explain this reference to quote. Dr. Mark Ross, love for Christ must include a love for his truth, and so we can never treat as inconsequential anything that Christ has commanded. The route that we might call doctrinal minimalism is not open to us. We cannot simply reduce the number of doctrines to be taught in the church and believed by the church to what we can all accept as important and ignore the rest. Movement in that direction always seems to lose its breaks and eventually nothing distinctive of Christianity remains. And listen, the church is in danger of this. It's not, you can't gather everybody together and everybody's going to agree. That's why you can't have a church where everybody on the planet can come because there are doctrinal issues that do divide. And to say that there should be no distinctives, as he says, eventually you lose the brakes and nothing distinctive remains. And so we must be careful. But he goes on to say this, but neither... Can we lock ourselves up in a very small group with maximum agreement on doctrine and morals and then separate from all others and refuse to acknowledge those as Christians who do not embrace all of our distinctives? That's true too. 
the difficulty as a church, which ones do you pick? That's why if you in the men's ministry, you saw a call for prayer for wisdom for pastors. Because I am inadequate to do this without God's help. And you are too. Dr. Mark Ross goes on. The saying of Rupertus Maldina strikes the right balance. It calls for unity in the essential things, the core of truth and our union with Christ. In non-essentials, those things that are not unimportant, but those things that if lacking do not prevent our union with Christ, he calls for liberty so that all might follow their consciences under the word and spirit. In all things, however, there must be love. I got brothers and sisters in other church denominations who I disagree with. I disagree with them, but I will eat with them. I will go on trips with them, and we will do the work of the gospel together in many, many ways because I love them. And in all things, there must be love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, according to Colossians 3. This is an important year for our church. Starting year four, we have grown significantly in the last nine months, I believe. Um, as I have shared that I wasn't necessarily believing in year two <laughs> that this thing was going to work. I believe God is involved. I believe he is. I believe he is leading us. And this is an important year as we and the elders decided to work through 1 Timothy and after that, 1 Corinthians, both two books that have a tremendous amount to do with how the church functions and the doctrines in which it is called to hold. And no doubt, as you grow, much of that growth will probably come, fortunately and unfortunately, from people who have attended other churches. Now, I say fortunately because if you find this church is a place that preaches the gospel and you've been looking for that, then I'm glad you're here. I say unfortunately because I really would prefer that most of our growth come from new believers who have been reached with the gospel. That's what I would prefer. But nevertheless, as we acquire more and more people, we will be tasked with how to handle disagreements, disagreements on doctrine. And I would say this, and I would have you pray for this, because wisdom is needed for this. But I would hope that all of our sound doctrine that we would hold to as a church always centers on the gospel and exalts Jesus supremely. And that would be the heartbeat of our church. So having said that, and in closing, y'all thought I was going to be really long like last week. Not. But in closing, let me tell you the gospel. You were born into sin, every one of you. No one had to teach you how to sin. You sin quite well all by yourself. And because of that sin, you were separated from God the Father. But, but, Ephesians says the word 
but because of God's great love for you. And Paul would write also that even while we were sinning, even while we were in rebellion toward God, God loved us and he sent Christ to die on our behalf. He took the punishment that you richly deserved. Jesus went to the cross. He took your sin and he gave those who would believe his righteousness. You were made right, not by anything you could ever do. You were made right by the blood of Jesus. And your repentance and your belief in that brings salvation. It rescues you from, the, from an eternity in hell. An eternity in hell would still not pay for your sins. And that is why you needed a Savior. And Jesus was provided for you. And those who have put their faith in Christ, who have repented and believed, are never the same again. You're never the same again. Perfect? No way. But you will never be the same again. Because you will have met the living God. And that changes us. And you might be here today and say, well, how do I do that? Do I need to take your hand? Do I need to repeat a certain set of prayers? I would say no. Here's what the Bible would tell you. Repent of your sins and believe in Christ. And if that is true for you, nothing will be the same again. As Keith comes to lead us in worship, pray that as a church that you would consistently pray and ask for wisdom for the elders, ask for wisdom for yourself as we continue to walk through this book of 1 Timothy, as we begin to ponder sound doctrine and what does it mean for our church. And I pray that you would be excited about that, that you would desire to be a part of a church who wants to hold to sound doctrine. I pray that would be your prayer as we walk through this book. Let me pray for us. And then we will worship the God of the gospel. Let's pray. God, you're good. Lord, I pray that we would ponder what it means to have sound doctrine. Lord God, that you would teach us as a church. That you would give us wisdom and patience and great love to walk through your word, God. And that it would correct our church for your glory. And may many people come to know your name through your work among this group of believers. We love you and I'm excited about what you're going to do and what you have done and what you're even doing now. Thank you, Jesus, for working with us. We are undeserving and we recognize it, but because of Christ, because of Christ, we have been made holy, and we thank you for that, Lord. It's in his precious son's name that we pray. Amen.